It's episode 47 of the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. It's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, insight, and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Joining us today, Jason Cooper, research analyst. Welcome. Hey, Danny. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Welcome to you. Morning, Danny. Trevor Nargis is a senior trader at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Good morning, and thank you. Uh, three of us wanted to do an episode to dispel any sort of doubts that uh, we don't like each other because we haven't done an episode with one another in quite some time. You got three of us today, but let's dive right into it, right? I mean, first, we want to say thank you to everyone who has been listening. We're almost coming up on a year's worth of episodes here, given that it's episode 47. We do have something on the books for episode 50 that'll be pretty exciting. We enjoy making these, and we appreciate you guys spreading the word. So let's get into it here. Jason, what do we got that's coming up this week? Yeah, well, firstly, also to our listeners, thank you. And as Trevor pointed out, share with your friends and family, especially Trevor shared it with his girlfriend and now his girlfriend's mom is tuning into every episode. So big shout out to her. We've got a lot of upcoming economic data. So on the housing side, existing home sales and housing permits slash starts, got leading economic indicators coming out. They've been running at negative 3.5% over the last six months. Not a great trend. Then we have PMI manufacturing services and composite. We'll get a lot of insight with respect to the continued potential strength of the economy. And then lastly, it's earnings season. We're really kicking it off and starting the morning with with Schwab pre-market. It looks like Blaine highlighted deposits being down. So that's something that everyone is going to be keeping an eye on. We also have a slew of travel and transports earnings this week, and that's going to be important given the resiliency of travel, especially coming out of this COVID period where it's been a really strong part of the economy. So we'll see how the consumer's doing. And then with respect to earnings season, we had a quote from JP Morgan's uh, Jamie Dimon last Friday after reporting strong earnings. He just highlighted that, quote, financial conditions will likely tighten as lenders become more conservative, and we do not know if this will slow consumer spending. We also continue to monitor for potentially higher inflation for longer and thus higher interest rates. And I would say on that JP Morgan note, and Jason, like you said, I mean, earning, it's going to be pretty busy with earnings this week, so I know you'll be pretty busy. Um, but JP Morgan's earnings in and of themselves were quite strong. I think that had a lot of people feeling a little bit better about the banking sector, but I think that was a strength in and of itself. So let's pivot into strengths here, guys. What do we got? I think the big one has been over the last quarter is long duration. We've talked about that multiple times with NASDAQ, long duration assets as far as treasuries and so forth. And we've continued to see that strength come through over the past few weeks. We look at what is causing some of that. So you've had more or less easing of conditions from interest rates coming down given the, the banking situation that we've had. So I and, and this is really getting at the equity side of things that as those interest rates came down, everyone started saying, oh, my discount rate on these equity assets can go lower, which means the price on those assets can go up. Which we've really seen, you know, throughout Q1, we talked about this for a couple of weeks now, that the NASDAQ has really dominated any sort of performance conversations when it comes to Q1, given the fact that it's been up north of 20% based on, you know, what Blaine was talking about here. But the one other thing I wanted to add from a strength standpoint is that the S&P stayed above its low in Q1 as well, which typically is a strength over the long term. When the S&P stays above its low throughout Q1 from the prior year, we tend to finish the year higher 92% of the time. And obviously, you know, add in the typical past performance as an indicative of future results, but it does present somewhat of a, I guess, seasonal trend, so to speak. So that's been a strength in and of itself. And two consecutive quarters of the S&P 500 being up t- typically signals the end of a bear market. And Trevor said, past performance is no guarantee of future results, but it, it is something worth pointing out. I think that's held for about 50 years. 
one other area that had a good strength that we haven't talked about as much. Well, we've talked about, but more a threat and what, what might happen going forward is is credit. And credit has actually performed fairly well year to date. Uh, just looking at the high yield index, if you will, that's up almost 4% year to date as of last week's close, where just the U.S. aggregate bond index is up about 3%. So there's actually been some spread tightening after going through what we saw in March with the banking situation. But overall, going into the year, you had about a 9% yield on high yield debt. And that that is a tailwind for high yield going forward, which we're seeing here uh, most recently. The risk there is obviously if we do go through some sort of credit crunch, which Jamie Dimon mentioned, you know, tightening of conditions and so forth, there's a real risk there. But in, in essence, you were being compensated for that risk in the most recent quarter. Another strength is China demand slash China stimulus saw a sharp rebound in Chinese credit in the first quarter. They basically spent almost two years not only dealing with COVID, but also trying to reduce demand uh, across their housing sector, thinking about what happened with Evergrande a couple years back. And now it seems like they're ready to stimulate that area of the economy. And it's incredibly tied into a lot of the natural resource securities that you would follow. So China's, uh, you know, f- consumes more than 50% of global commodities such as copper, uh, aluminum, maybe steel. So having them look to stimulate the economy there, it is going to provide a, a boon for the materials sector in particular, which which has been strong lately. All right, let's pivot into weaknesses, guys. What do we got? Uh, consumption's been weak. We've seen that and continue to see some weakness showing up there. I mean, that comes from a number of different areas, but one area that we see going forward would be you know bank lending decreasing because of what's happening and having to shore up balance sheets for from the banking standpoint could lead to lower consumption as well. It's been an established trend though. You look at retail sales and they've been trending lower for months now. And when you inflation adjust that number, you're getting approximately a negative 3% pullback. And over the weekend, our CIO, Derek Felsky, commented on the importance of doing that because it shows the difference between total sales and volume adjusted sales. And when you have that pullback, it means we're consuming fewer goods and services. Well, and that's something that we talk about with our chief strategist, Todd Voigt, right? Is not necessarily always paying attention to the dollar amount that's moving because companies can raise prices and it looks like sales are rising. But if their volumes are actually down, that's almost a better indicator of what's really happening from a consumption trend. And some of that's been happening at at the expense of taking on credit from the consumer. It's not just, oh, I have money in the bank account, I'm going to go spend it and you know get consumption that way. It's, oh, I'm going to actually take a charge on my credit card and and build up credit, which isn't uh, necessarily a healthy way of doing that. Well, and, and like you said, I mean, which is why we've also seen credit card balances tick up, right? We've seen outstanding outstanding amounts that people owe on their cards tick up, whether that be just to buy groceries, things like that. It's been really tough out there. And back to what you were saying, Jason, on some overall consumption trends as well. It's not necessarily just retail sales. We were talking, the three of us, just before we got in here this morning about looking even further underneath the hood and looking at, you know, like merchandise sales at gas stations or, you know, the activity at restaurants. And we're all seeing that kind of start to trend downwards a little bit. So it's kind of happening across the board. Couple that in with the banking situation, having banks tighten up. If someone's going out to look for a loan on their home or renew let's say a business, renew their line of credit or something of that nature, banks might not be in a position where they can add that lending, which then you start working in 
to a more wide credit crunch. What's hard to know is where those small banks really sit. You know, you have a lot of small community and regional banks that aren't publicly traded. There's 4,000 of them, if you will, sitting out there that we get aggregate data, but like digging into the books and saying, okay, which banks out there are actually in a good spot and which ones aren't? It's what's causing some of the fear and the angst in the markets. You just look at JP Morgan, which is probably the best run bank in the entire country. And even their deposits were down 8% year over year. They highlighted that consumer and community banking deposits were down 4% year over year, but 3% of that came in the last quarter. And they were a net beneficiary of deposit inflows as individuals looked to move capital from some of these smaller banks to behemoths like JP Morgan, which they viewed as more stable. Even with something like those bigger banks, though, I think a weakness of the banking sector in general is the ability to compete with higher yielding assets. You know, you have CDs, treasuries, money markets that are out there and are fairly risk averse. You know, on CDs, you got FDIC insurance. Same thing with like money markets and treasuries are backed by the U.S. government. But these are all yielding much more than what you see in a traditional bank account. And that's ultimately been another driver of why people have been moving their assets out of banks. I think we've gotten past the point of mass contagion effect, but there's definitely going to be some other banks that struggle going through this period from a capital standpoint. And then earnings going forward is obviously going to be a a hard thing for banks to overcome. And then the last weakness we should touch on was the budget deficit. The data came out last week and last month's budget deficit was $378 billion for, for one month. The first three months of the year, it's $680 billion. That's on pace for almost a $2 trillion calendar year. And on a year-over-year basis, it increased from $290 billion to $680 billion. It's a weakness in the sense that long-term, it's completely unsustainable, especially with interest rates where they are now. But it also is perversely a strength in the sense that that is effectively fiscal stimulus. That money is being to a large part, sent directly out to individuals to purchase. I'd say it's a weakness still because you're heading (laughs) into a potential recession and you're running a deficit as large as you are. Then when you get to the point when you actually might need to inject fiscal stimulus to help prop up the economy, you're just driving that deficit even larger, you know, like it. But where would spending be without it? Right. That's true. I mean, yeah, a weakness and a strength. Right, all right. fair. It's just it's it's a very it's a very sticky spot, right? It's tough. Um, well, it's just not healthy, right? So we could go on for that. We can go on about that for a little while here. But guys, let's pivot and go into opportunities. Who wants to start us off? Opportunities. We've talked about international emerging markets. We've had a weaker dollar, and that's on the back of potentially Fed cutting uh, rates or pausing, if you will. Other economies essentially still having their central banks looking at at tightening. Uh, And that's caused the the dollar to weaken, which has supported outside of the U.S. assets from a price standpoint. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, that inverse relationship. You look at, you know, whether that be developed markets, emerging markets, or even just a better blend, you know, the all country world, XUS, that relationship is quite inversely correlated, right? So when the dollar's strong, you tend to see all country world XUS be weaker and then vice versa. So when the dollar's weak, you see those international economies perform a little better. And that's why we've seen, you know, since the dollar kind of has come off its peak, we've seen those international stocks rally quite hard. So just to tout that relationship once again. I mean, with that, you've had emerging markets and their output, their GDP as a global percentage of GDP increasing over the last decade, yet the valuations in emerging markets haven't really reflected that. And as a 
as an outcome of that, you have emerging markets not representing a huge portion of the global market, but they represent a large portion of the GDP output. Historically, those should come more in line, which presents an opportunity in emerging markets longer term from our standpoint. I saw that some of these emerging economies, I'm not sure if it's just the BRICS, but their GDP is now greater than the G6. So from a global relevance perspective, it's tremendous. Well, it's almost like, you know, taking into account the traditional Buffett indicator, right? When you're looking at like market value versus GDP, kind of like looking at that ratio and those those countries appear to be quite undervalued in that standpoint when it comes to how much they are contributing to GDP, the growth that's going on there. You know, we talk about the different population demographics. So when you look at, you know, birth rates in the U.S., population growth rates in the developed nations, compare that to what you're seeing in some of these more EM type countries, you know, like India, look at the population growth rates there. When you have population growing at such a strong clip, coupled with the amount of people that are coming out of poverty and are becoming more sophisticated, it just creates more of a runway for, you know, demand to increase, uh, more sophisticated spending patterns. It's, it's quite interesting to watch. I think what keeps it back sometimes is the governance around that capital that gets deployed in those economies. The, the ins- not insurance, but the assurance that you are putting money into an emerging economy and knowing that you can get that money back when you liquidate your investment or so forth. I think that's been a cause for concern. But as these economies continue to grow and they want to attract dollars, that I think sorts itself out over time. And yeah, th- you might see Europe become Brazil and Brazil become Europe. Right. <laughs> And I think going back to what you said, Blaine, about putting money in and being able to get that out, that's something that we've talked about. And, you know, I kind of want to give you the opportunity to speak on it here. But we've talked about maybe international debt or emerging market debt, given dollar performance. And again, those kind of different underlying fundamentals in international economies. What do you think about that? I I mean, from an international debt standpoint, you're essentially looking at the dollar versus um, those international currencies. I there's not as much of a risk there. The emerging market is a different, bit of a different situation because you do really bring in that governance piece and how do those economies peg their currency to what has been the U.S. dollar? Does the U.S. dollar continue to weaken? Do they change what they're pegging it to over time? I mean, those are all real, real threats that you got to be cognizant of from that standpoint. I think there's opportunities there. It's just being diligent on which ones you're using or how you're looking at that. Maybe the last opportunity is to highlight where the VIX closed Friday. It was, I think, 17, which is the lowest level since pre the bear market began. So since last January, kind of indicates that the market's relatively complacent right now, despite some of the risks and weaknesses that we highlighted around consumption and the banking sector. So from an opportunity perspective, when you look at where we're trading from a valuation uh, across the broader market, it's pretty cheap right now to lock in some some puts and, and protect yourself as an investor. Yeah, that's a really valuable piece of information because when you're looking at option contracts, volatility is a big price component of that. And as that VIX comes down, and if you're, if you're looking at where to apply protection or write puts or use options in general, that volatility piece is crucial in those calculations. And when it's low like this, applying protection, in essence, buying puts is a low cost endeavor. Vice versa, if volatility spikes, writing puts and 
generating income with the idea of owning shares later is the opposite of that essentially so place to look if you're looking for downside protection trevor you want to take it away with some threats yeah let's jump into it here you know we've talked about this as a team offline for a little while now and we've been watching warn notices right so people who are going to be notified of plant closures or you know hey you're going to be laid off potentially here work's going to cease for a little bit warn notices tend to lead jobless claims and now we're finally starting to see those weekly jobless claims tick up in certain states it's been really interesting because like ohio actually saw a pretty decent bump so i don't know what they got going on in ohio but in many states we're starting to see jobless claims tick up here something to watch for sure right as jobless claims tick up uh, that should be a somewhat indicative of what we're going to see from an unemployment rate standpoint as job openings tend to lead unemployment. Yeah, and as you get those unemployment numbers starting to move higher, if they get to a certain percentage, it it turns into, I don't want to say a cascading effect, but it it's hard to stem that, that unemployment moving. Historically, if we see a 1% change in unemployment, it tends to move higher from there. So that's something that we need to watch and be very cognizant of given the fact that we've seen these warrant notices pick up. Well, it's and it's been tough for the Fed to get unemployment to budge, right? Those yeah, job almost, numbers have been so strong. Yeah, it's almost like they push, 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 and then something finally breaks, you know? So we've like talked regional about banks. that. Yeah, right, exactly. The other area that's been a bit of a, a threat, I, I would say from a monetary policy perspective, we had the Fed effectively expanding the balance sheet over the last couple of weeks to stem some of the risks in the banking sector. But now you've had three consecutive weeks of quantitative tightening overpowering that. The balance sheet is back to shrinking. And then you also had the Treasury General account. They raised close to a trillion dollars really pre the Fed embarking on its massive rate hiking cycle. And last look, it was down to like $83 billion. And what that means is that they haven't had to raise money in the markets by issuing new treasuries to fund the deficit that we highlighted as being a massive expansion. So you you're effectively barring a really strong tax collection season where that would jump, which it might come in weaker than expected given poor asset performance last year. You might be pulling forward the debt ceiling. I don't wanna call it a debacle ahead of time, but we, we tend to let things go down to the wire. Yeah, from a government standpoint, they're not gonna, neither party's gonna budge. And then coupling that with the fact that banks are still putting money at the Fed with reverse repos. I mean, there's massive liquidity coming out of the system, and you see that with the M2. I know Ken and Todd talked about that last week, but we haven't seen that number go negative in, like, the history of the data that we have. The history of the data stemmed back like, the 1960s, but it did happen in the Great Depression. Okay, well, that's not a good... <laughs> that's that's not really a great comparison. <laughs> I know we laugh it's about a, it's that, a but tough, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a tough period to... Con well, it, it's, it's concerning, right? right? That that's the only period in which we've seen M2 growth go negative. And again, I, I mean, I think there are some different fundamental backdrops right now, certainly, but... Again, you're looking at those two different time periods and saying, okay, the last time we saw this was the depression. I think it makes sense as to why you've seen people concerned about what's going on with banks as well. Hopefully helps get inflation under control. It's just a matter of does it come at some larger cost that we haven't been able to dissect at this point. Good episode today. I think the most amazing thing that I learned is that Trevor actually has a girlfriend. Right? <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, I, yeah. I know that that's surprising to many. Yeah. Let's uh, go around the horn and uh, do our headlines. Headline strength. Long duration assets. Headline weakness. Consumption. Headline opportunity. Taking advantage of volatility. 
And our headline threat? Labor market. Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast, Episode 47. See you next week. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.